This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 10. Yes. If an agent's worth his salt and wants to sell that property at the right pricing and a nice clean deal, agents should have a lot of this stuff together. I mean, the old saying used to be, well listed is half sold. Yeah, 10 episodes, double digits, baby. Thank you so much for joining me on this amazing journey. 100 episodes, here we come. I can almost taste the financial freedom I'll have on our 100th episode because of this beautiful thing we call commercial property. Today, we are talking about the most important thing when it comes to commercial property investing, and that is due diligence. In today's show, Mish Daniel is our first guest today, and she is going to be focusing on conducting due diligence on the tenant. She also explains the five areas of due diligence and now the sixth area, plus she shares the red flags that she looks out for when she is acquiring assets for her clients. Surfboard writing, cash flow creating, James Dawson once again shares his many years of wisdom and knowledge in conducting due diligence 101. He talks about the professionals that you need to have on your team how much you need to budget for them, and when to engage them. We also cover the must-have reports and how to get them. Now, if you're enjoying the show, please help me out by subscribing, giving the show a five-star rating, and leaving a review. I know it's a pain in the ass, but it really helps me out. Now, a quick message from my company, Develop a Life. At Develop a Life, We want to help you unlock your financial freedom. If you have a big backyard that's getting too hard to maintain and you want to downsize without the trouble of moving, we offer a subdivision service to New South Wales residents. We manage the entire subdivision and sale of the land for you. There could literally be hundreds of thousands of dollars waiting to be unlocked right in your own backyard. Head over to our website to request a free subdivision assessment today. That's www.developalife.com.au. My next guest is an educator and commercial due diligence expert, Miss Daniel. How are you, Miss? Hello, Andrew. Thank you for the invitation. Um, All right, Mish, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Okay, so in a nutshell, started out at the age of 22, been uh, doing real estate and business at the same time. And uh, the last 18 years, I've specialized in commercial real estate. And that is really where I found my comfort spot, let's say. I moved from South Africa about uh, six and a half years ago. And I really did build my portfolio up in South Africa and I got a good understanding of how real estate works. And at the same time, ran businesses, manufacturing businesses, 400 staff. So it gave me a good understanding on the business side of it. And arriving in Australia, I thought I'd do the same. So and my platform was commercial real estate and I really love that space. However, the due diligence is a little bit different, obviously being in a different country. There are different rules and regulations, then you've got to be all over those. Yeah, that's right. So, Mish, where are you located in Queensland? Based out of Brisbane. So I move around quite a lot. A lot of the properties that we that we look at are from Sunny Coast to Woomba, down a Gold Coast. We do Townsville, we do Rockhampton, we we look at all areas, Gympie, do quite a lot of areas in Queensland. However, we do have feet on the ground in Vic, and also in New South Wales. Oh, great. So what are you seeing in your marketplace in Brisbane City at the moment? Look, Brisbane City, I think, is not 100% back on its feet. And a lot of people are asking me about uh, post-COVID-19, what do we see? And 
it's a no-brainer. The weaker tenants are probably going to fall off the barrel that we anticipated beforehand, and the stronger tenants are just going to get stronger as a result of filling those gaps. However, one of the things that we're doing at the moment is looking at the opportunities because we've got a mass of of people that are going to be jobless or that are jobless at the moment. And those people essentially need to go back into the workplace. And one of the areas that we're looking at is how can we facilitate that space by creating opportunities in the commercial world, bringing the right vendors in that automatically will be employing those people over, let's say, over the next six months. Yeah, it's a big question that has to be asked, but we're not sure of the answer yet, I guess. So, Mish, what's your preferred sector? Look, I work right across the board, across all three sectors. So we do industrial, we do retail and we do office. I probably do a lot more in the retail sector at the moment because that's where the pain is. However, my speciality has always been warehousing and industrial, being that I come out of that sort of a a background, you know, in manufacturing we always had warehouses and factories. So I, I really understand that area in a big way. And the other two areas I think are probably the simpler areas would be um, office as well as retail. I look at that as, as simpler and it's, it's kind of, you know, easier to go into. Yeah, great. So today, Mish is going to share her wisdom in conducting due diligence on the tenant. So Mish, do you interview your tenants? Most certainly, most definitely. And in fact, I would say that is one of the most important parts of your due diligence. So in commercial real estate, I always draw the parallel between uh, residential and commercial. In residential, I say you've got two areas. You've got the building and you've got the area. Basic, very, very basic. In commercial, you've got five areas. You've got the building, you've got the area, you've got the tenant, you've got the lease, and you've got the legals. And now, in fact, we're looking at a sixth area, which is the stability of the of the tenant. So in other words, looking at their P&Ls, their profits and losses statements. And that is on the back of the uh, coronavirus. So the most important thing is to build up that relationship with tenants and build up their trust. Now, I always say, You know, this is not a matter of going to war. This is a matter of collaborating with your tenants because the better your relationship is with your tenants, the better their business is going to do. You get an understanding of their business and how you can help them and they get to learn to know, like, and trust you, okay, as a landlord. And if there is an instance where they need to reach out to you, there shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a relationship of fear. It should rather be a, a relationship of, of trust and assistance. And I think this is where a lot of people make the mistake with their tenants is where they might abuse that relationship to a certain extent. Yeah, I love that. It really is a partnership, isn't it? And their success is your success. Absolutely, 100%. And in my teaching, in my coaching, I always say to my my students, make the effort to spend time with your tenants, get into their heads, understand their businesses, understand what drives them and understand how you can help them. You know, by doing that, you're going to be helping yourself. So ask them those pertinent questions. What do they need? What what would they like to see in their environment? Who would they like to have in the same complex? What types of businesses are going to support their businesses? I'll give you an example. I met with a hairdresser a short while back, and I got I got asking her these questions, and she said to me, well, the existing vendor wouldn't allow her to have hot water. The hot water cylinder broke down, and he refused to fix the hot water cylinder. <laughs> I mean, she's a hairdresser. <laughs> she's got to wash hair in cold water. Wow. <laughs> it makes sense. It just doesn't make sense. And then the aircon went and he wouldn't replace the aircon. And I thought that is just very short minded. You know, that is very, very short minded because ultimately what he's saying is I don't value you as a tenant and I'm not prepared to invest in you. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. What people don't realize is that by investing in your property, giving your tenants what they need, you're actually adding value inadvertently to the value of your property. And it's tax deductible. So happy days. (laughs) Give them what they want, you know. (laughs) 
I love the fact that you brought up bringing in another tenant that complements the other tenant. Like if you say you have a hairdresser, you might have a, a beauty salon next door that does nails or something like that. Yes, absolutely. So what we try and do is, and the way that we do vacancies is we try and build hubs. So depending on what type of business it is, and again, I'll give you another example. We were having a look at a business this morning, which was a motorcycle distribution business. And my student was asking me what other types of businesses could he, what else could he attract there? He's got six tenancies, one's in motorcycle, the one does refurbs of, I think it's uh, upholstery. I said to him, well, go and ask your tenants, go and speak to your tenants and find out what would they like? What types of businesses would they like there? Because the motorcycle business is a really beautiful, clean cut business. I can see him having accessories, motorcycle accessories next door. You know, or even a bicycle, an electronic bicycle distribution next door is still in the same type of business and they would support each other. So it's all sorts of supportive businesses, not in the gate, putting in a little snack store because where he was, there was no food. There was no cafeteria or snack store or anything. So he could actually bring that in. It's a lovely corner building. So there's two very busy roads. The snack store should do very well and be supported by the local tenants. Yeah, it's funny what it can happen if you just ask. Yes, you know, ask them because they work there. They are living there minimum eight hours a day. They can see what is happening around them and they will see the opportunities. And they'll tell you what they want, which helps you effectively to go out and find those tenants. And again, you're adding value to their lives and inadvertently you're adding value to your own property. Do you interview tenants from each sector or would it only be retail? No, I would interview every single tenant. So, and again, I think the best way to explain is always to give examples, kind of painting little pictures. So <laughs> that's why <laughs> I, I give examples. Let's say, for instance, we're reviewing a building that has 10 tenancies. We would make a special effort to interview every single tenant and to be asking them the same questions. So are they happy there? Do they want to continue? What would they change? What would they like to see? What would make them want to stay on in the building even longer to extend their, their rentals, their terms? You know, some of them are slightly unrealistic. Some of them are very realistic. But asking them those kind of questions really gives you the inside track of, A, whether you're wanting to be purchasing that commercial site, and whether it's going to be fraught with difficulties or whether it, it really is viable, whether what they're asking for is reasonable and viable and to put you on the right path for purchasing the building as well as building that, that trust, that know, like and trust with your tenants. Okay, so how do you go about setting up these meetings? Well, I think depending on where you are in the deal or the contract, in certain instances, it might be before you go to contract. And the first thing out of etiquette, I would always ask the agent if they would mind if I have an interview with the tenants. And I'm going to give you the hottest tip over here. If the agent is cagey about that and doesn't want you to have an interview, I call that a red flag. Don't go there. Okay. Question that with the agent. Because if the agent doesn't want you to speak to the tenant, why not? He's hiding something. Nine times out of 10, the agent should be pretty open about it and, and say absolutely yes. And you ask the agent for those contact details. So the more transparent you can be, the better for the deal. I love that tip. That's great. So what information should you request from the tenant? Look, it's, it's, I try and make my interviews with the tenants as non-threatening as possible. So general chit-chat conversation, how's the business going? What could add to your business? What do you think you could, you could do to make the business better? Or what do you need to make the business better? When's your best trading months? When's your worst trading months? And you want to know that information so that when they do have difficulties, you can, re you can go back to your records and see oh, that maybe uh, December, January is their worst trading month. Therefore, their rentals might be late or they might battle with their rentals. And speak to them about, about that in advance. You know, just say to them, look, I know you're coming up for this period. How are you going? How's the business doing? Can you carry yourself over? Because realistically, you don't want your tenants to default. You're wanting to be helping them in that area as much as possible. 
I make it as conversational as possible. Would you ask for the profit and loss statement? And then if you do, what profit margin would be acceptable? Okay, so that's a very interesting question. Now, to ask somebody for their profit and losses statements, they must know that you're very that you're very keen on the building. So you can't see a building for the first time and be asking that right up front. I would say once you've been in the deal for a while and you've negotiated back and forward and you've put your foot on the deal or you're, you're under contract and there's certainty, I would most certainly add that in as one of the points of due diligence under contract to be asking. And again, it's something that's fairly novel. Quite a lot of vendors would push back and if there's no interest, there's there's no monetary gain for them to share their profits and losses statements. So it's quite a sensitive topic. Mm. Generally, I would want the agent to do their work and I'd want the agent to get that over the line before we actually settle on the property. So I get them to do that as sensitively as possible and they need to explain why. And in the profit and losses statement, to answer your second question, we're looking for reserves to see that they can carry themselves through hard times. So how has the business performed over the last two to three years and how is it performing now? What you'll also pick up is trends. So you'll see whether the business performs constantly right throughout the year or whether it has got those trends, the highs and the lows and be aware of where those lows are and how do they impact on the actual business going forward? Can the business carry themselves through those lows and for how long? And how long should the business have been trading there for you to be comfortable with that investment? That's kind of like how long is a piece of string? Um, <laughs> <laughs> because we've we've taken on businesses that haven't been, that are brand new, that have gone in fresh and new. What we do is we look at the operator. So we, we have a look at the operator to see how strong is the operator? How long's he been in business? How many other businesses does he have? How many businesses has he had before? And how has he performed in those businesses? So I'd be very ambivalent to go in with um, a brand new building with a brand new operator if they don't have a track record. You want to make sure that that operator really has got some sort of point of difference or substance or backing that they can push through for the next two years minimum. So 24 months that they can handle themselves for the next 24 months is critical. Okay. So if the tenant isn't willing to give you any documentation, how do you verify what they're telling you? Well, and that's why I say you want to be doing this in your due diligence period before you go to settlements, because that is up to the vendor and the seller, the vendor and the seller's agent, basically, to get you that sort of information. So that means that the agent's got to work a little bit harder in making that happen. So I always throw the ball back in their court. And again, I'll give you a perfect example. We're busy negotiating a deal right now where agreements have been made on the back of COVID-19 with the tenants, where we can see that a shortfall of rentals outstanding and there's nothing in writing. And I've just thrown it you know, right back at the agent and, and said, look, realistically, would you go into a deal knowing that there's debt in the deal and that there's no recovery program in place? That recovery program has to be done between the vendor, the agent and the existing tenant. I think that's going to be quite common now, Mish. Do you see that as a trend that's going to happen in the future now? Very much so. Very much so, Andrew. And I don't want to say this sounding badly. I want to say this as gently as possible. But the only way to say it is, is as honestly as possible. And realistically, there's an opportunity in that. Because you're going to find that a lot of the vendors have not put documentation in writing with their tenants. So there's a place of ambu ambu ambiguity. Thank you very much. Couldn't get that out <laughs> because I've just got my tongue twisted around it. <laughs> so it's just a, a space of uncertainty where the tenants are unsure about what the arrangement is. The vendor is unsure about what he is doing with the situation. And if it's not in writing, there's uncertainty. So with those kind of deals, I'm saying straight off, before we even take those deals on, before we acquire those properties, 
I want certainty. I want to know that those tenants know exactly what their situation is, that they're going to have to pay for their deferments or that it was free rental, that it's 100% clear. And the one thing that I always say to people is, let's let's not muck around over here. The reason why you're buying this property is because we're talking about money, okay? And it's it's one of the three energy centers that we live in and thrive off. So you need to be 100% clear about your finances. You're putting a lot of money on the table purchasing a commercial property. There's so many different factors. There's so many things that can go wrong. If there's something that you can clear up before you actually purchase that property, then now's the time. Do it before you put your foot on it. Yeah, I think there'd be a lot of commercial vendors out there that are probably a little bit lazy and aren't as thorough as yourself getting things sorted. And I'm actually negotiating a deal in Newcastle at the moment and exactly the same thing. There's nine tenancies. Three of the tenancies have had their rent split in half. The owner wasn't even aware that documentation had been released by the government yet to get that done. So I actually sent him the documentation and hopefully they're going to get that sorted before any transaction goes through. Well, Andrew, from my perspective, I can tell you that uh, I just put the brakes on a deal and we're busy negotiating one fairly large deal right now. And I just put my heel in and said, forget it. We're not going one step further. Absolutely not. I would far rather let the deal fall over as a result of protecting my clients than leading them down a deep, dark hole that could hurt them down the line. Is there any negotiating tactic that you could put in here, Mish, to make it so you are comfortable with taking on that deal? Look, again, it's it's very much around uh, due diligence. And uh, the negotiating tactic is basically that they're wanting us to sign the contract without any certainty. And this is a deal that's fallen over three times before. And I've just said it the way that it is. This deal is going to fall over for a fourth time if you don't get your ducks in a row. This is your responsibility as a vendor to make sure that we know and you being transparent about the relationship between yourself and your tenants. Could you put a clause in the contract saying that states that once this property is transferred, this has to be done? Well, realistically, I wouldn't bother doing that because the vendor needs to take responsibility before we even get there. Because I can assure you, you can put a clause in there and you're just opening yourself up for litigation and huge expenses that you don't want. So it's a matter of shifting the ball into their court. I don't want to give them that power. Right now, the ball's in my court, and I'm saying, yes, we want the deal. Absolutely. Everybody's happy and fine. The deposit's ready to go. It's as hot as. Give us what we want in order to make this happen. Yeah, some good advice there. So, Mish, is there any information that's off limits, like documentation? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We have had the encounter with agents where we were about to go to contract and the agent popped up just before we were about to sign. The agent popped out with something saying that there's a non-disclosure agreement between the vendor and the tenant. So how the conversation rolled out was, well, we need privy to that information, which they were not prepared to give us. And I mean, realistically, what goes through your mind if you know that there's an agreement between the vendor and the tenant and they're not giving you privy to that information, where does it lead your mind to? They're hiding there's, They're hiding yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. So it was a high yielding property. It was an 8.3% yielding property, which tells me straight away that the vendor was going to be giving them an incentive after the sale had gone through. Oh, okay. Why do you say that? (laughs) Well, think about it. It's a high yielding property. It's uh, 1.3% higher than any of the other properties in the surrounding areas. It looks like an absolutely attractive deal. The tenant is not at liberty to speak about it because they've signed a non-disclosure. The vendor will not disclose what the non-disclosure is. And we're talking about money. We're talking about finances. We're talking about purchasing a property that is at market rate, but with a very high rental. Sweet deal. Everybody wants them all day. But in order to achieve that price, the vendor has to achieve that high rental to make it attractive. Once the deal's gone through, 
the vendor is probably going to be giving the tenant a kickback and the tenant has got expectations of that happening and lowering the rent when there's a market review. You're going into something that you don't know. It's the unknown. I had two of those deals on the table. We had to pull out of both of them. Yeah, fair enough. It's always better to pull out if you're unsure and it doesn't look good. For sure. Absolutely. Uh, My clients were very upset about it. I was fuming mad. I had a bit of a go at the agent and those properties sat on the market for quite a while. And I sincerely hope by the time somebody did buy them that they didn't get hurt with that non-disclosure because a non-disclosure is you signing a blank check. Mm. (laughs) A non-disclosure could be anything. It could mean that the minute you're purchasing that property that is going to be bulldozed down. It could be, you know, it could mean anything. <laughs> yeah, well. Don't do it. Do not do it. There are a thousand other deals out there. <laughs> yeah. I've got 188 deals on my desk, on my desktop. <laughs> <I'm not yet. laughs> All right, Mish, do you have any other tips that you would like to share with the listeners? Look, I think when it comes to due diligence, my biggest tip is follow your guts. And I always talk about red flags. If there's something that you see that feels that it's not right, ask about it. Don't let it slip under the carpet. If the agent is not letting you speak to the tenant, pick up the phone and speak to the tenant. Do not let it slip under the carpet because whatever it is, it's that that is going to hurt you down the line. Some great advice there. Mish, where can the listeners go to find out more about you and your services? Okay, so they can hop on to uh, www.mishdanielcommercial. That's our website. And I'm pretty active on Facebook, Mish Daniel Commercial Facebook as well. And if they'd like to reach out to me, they can email me on mish at jdiholdings.com.au or even drop me a line on my mobile phone, 0401. 313573. Fantastic, Mish. My guest today has been Mish Daniel. Thanks, Mish. Thanks, Andrew. Lovely chatting to you and thank you for the time. Are you sick of being tied down to a job you hate? Wouldn't you like to choose if and when you want to work? Cash flow from commercial property is one of the best ways to replace your income and wave bye-bye to that day job. It's not unusual to receive 50 to 100 to even $200,000 of net income from one commercial property. Imagine not having to work, but you still get that paycheck each month. I'm taking steps to make this a reality for me and my family. Like me, the first step you need to take is investing in knowledge. James Dawson's Commercial Property Cashflow Blueprint is the number one online course on the subject in Australia. If you want to take your commercial investing to the next level, do what I did and invest in yourself first. Go to www.james.com dawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash cps to check out his free webinar and you can find the affiliate link in the show notes. Our next guest is an avid surfer and the creator of the number one online commercial property course, James Dawson. How are you, mate? Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks again for having me on. No worries, buddy. What type of surfboard do you ride? Mate, I ride a McTavish 9-1 Fireball. It's sort of a performance uh, mount, and uh, I absolutely love it. Actually, I've been riding a similar board for a few years now, and uh, just a single fin. I had a custom-made um, single fin version of it, and it's great. It can perform in anything from one foot to ten foot. Not that I'm often in ten-foot waves, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, mate. So if uh, you listened to last episode, we discussed making an offer and negotiating the purchase of a property. But now that we've made an offer and it's been accepted, we can move on to the next stage, which is due diligence. So what is due diligence, James? Well, due diligence, yeah, say that word quickly a few times. It gets gets, uh, tongue twisting. It's basically 
making sure that this property is everything as it was presented or everything that you think it's going to be. So it's, you know, practicing uh, a level of diligence and going right through everything to do with that property. Now, that's both physical and sort of document driven and number driven. There's those three issues. There's the legal due diligence, the building due diligence, and of course, the number due diligence, checking that the numbers are all okay. Okay. And so how long should this period be? And is it negotiable? It is negotiable. You'll find that sellers typically want a very short due diligence period. And realistically, it generally can't be any shorter than 21 days because it's just almost impossible to get anything done during that period. I generally like to try for at least 30 days, but generally you find it will be anywhere from, say, 21 days, maybe up to even 60 days, just depending on what the property is and how big it is. If it's a multi-tenant property with, you know, 22 leases, for example, and multiple things to inspect, it's obviously going to take a lot longer to get through all that. And often vendors will realise that and they'll be happy to sign a contract with a longer period involved. Last episode, you dropped a nice little trick to include the business days. So you might negotiate 30 days and then you can bring it back to, say, a 21 business days, which in matter of fact is basically 30 days anyway. That's right. And look, I wouldn't say it's a trick, but actually, you know, a lot of people in legal terms do use business days, you know. So if you're putting in writing an offer with the DD period term in that offer, perhaps you can try to say, well, look, you know, my offer is X with a DD period of 30 business days and see how you go. But it can always be a little bit of to and fro in. And as I mentioned in the last podcast, it's uh, quite often you're able to extend that DD period if you're just running out of time at the end, as long as you're doing the work that you need to do and you can let them know that. They, most people will extend it because it's better to stick with you than get on a new horse, so to speak. So how much money should you put aside for DD? Well, essentially, I would roll that all into your legal fees and building inspections and things like that. So on a 500k property, you potentially would probably want to allow for, and, and I would include the valuation as being part of the due diligence. It's almost like the ultimate due diligence, right, for someone to tell you that the property is actually worth the amount that you're paying for it. So, you know, on a 500k property, it might be seven or $8,000, could be less, but I would allow that because they're hard costs and you don't want to cut yourself short. So I would allow that. And if you can save any on that, that would be great. But if it's a, a property that you say a freestanding property and you're buying with some upsides in mind, you may want to allow more than that because you might need to have, say, an architect or a plan to spend a bit of time on that as well, as compared to, say, buying a strata title office where you obviously won't want to be developing it. So it comes down to what sort of property it is as well. And as I mentioned, I've spent 25000 on legal fees and due diligence, and out of that 25k probably 15 was for due diligence. Okay, so what professionals do you need to get involved during this period? Before you sign anything, of course, you need your lawyer. You potentially need some advice from your accountant if you have some questions about any GST component or what entity that you're buying in. And then you move on to the people physically inspecting the property. And as I mentioned, planners or architects, if you're planning to develop that property. Other people that you would get involved may be sort of freebies, I guess, could be talking to property managers, maybe not from the agent that's selling the property or the agency that's selling the property, but perhaps talking to other property managers for some advice uh, prior to finishing the DD period, because often they can offer some great tips on whether they think that the property is correctly rented as well. So it's just another little string to the bow in the due diligence period. With the professionals that you need to contact, James, should you contact them prior to getting your offer accepted or should you only wait until your DD period starts? I think that depends. A great question. And I think that depends on what sort of property it is. Now, if it's a property that has some potential upsides you've identified and for you to do the deal, it's really essential for you to have those upsides. I would be, prior to even signing a contract, you know, be talking to planners, architects, 
as quickly as possible. But essentially, the real work starts once you sign a contract, otherwise you could be wasting some money. So, you know, often within a week of looking at a property and before signing anything, you can get a pretty good idea of what can be done with that property if there's some upsides. But if it's just a small strata office, for example, or a small strata industrial building, there's probably no need for that. And really, you would just wait until you've signed the contract for everything to get going. And what reports are a must-have during that time? So there's multiple uh, reports that a lawyer will provide you a list with. And those sort of legal reports are things like, you know, main roads, mine subsidence, contamination, planning, zoning, development approvals, fire certificates, maintenance contracts. But the must-haves that I think are on the, the top of that list would always be a building and pest report, even if it is a strata building, and also uh, very, very important with strata properties, there's sort of two levels of, of strata or body corporate reports that you can get. There's one that just gives a, a bit of an indication of how much money is in the sinking fund, which is always a good thing to know, you know, because that's what the repairs are, are paid for. But there's a, a more in-depth report that might cost, say, $250, which actually gives you the minutes to the meetings so you can see if there's any disputes going on in that building. It wouldn't perhaps be a great idea to buy in a building where there's a whole bun fight of disputes happening. So that's very essential. And your lawyer will guide you through that. But maintenance contracts are a good one during the due diligence period because quite often sellers leave out the fact that they've signed uh, a maintenance contract, for example, for air conditioning or lifts or something like that. And they haven't put it in the outgoings and it sort of slips through and that could cause you to want to adjust the price down if it's an outgoing that wasn't disclosed before. So that's another good one. Now, some of those are just simply requests that are made on the landlord rather than something that a lawyer can order from uh, a service or a, a council. So what DD should be done on the tenant? Okay, so that's a look, that's a great point. I'm just in the middle of one right now. It's interesting in this COVID time because the tenants aren't in the office but are coming back into the office that we're looking at. So we've done quite a bit of research online about this tenant and also asking for six months rental statements and outgoing statements. So they're paying a net rent with outgoings on top. So just to see how regularly they pay, it would be fantastic to see that they pay on the first of the month every month and that there's no problems. But just uh, checking out a webinar about this particular company, they're a worldwide company with an office at a head Australian office in Queensland. It was just great checking out a webinar just the other day where they were saying, well, look, we're looking forward to coming back into the office. We're going to be here. We're doing this. We're doing that, that sort of thing. But also you can ask for their financials, their assets and liabilities. And these are often things that have been obtained when the tenant first signed the first lease of the property. So let's say they've been in there for five years, you could ask the selling agent to get you the original documents that were provided. Now, they may have to ask the tenant permission for those, but one of the best things that I like to do is actually talk to the tenant if you can get that opportunity. And it's just a bit of a chat. Some tenants don't want to do that, but this inspection uh, that I went to the other day in Queensland, the managing director of the company was there. So we just had a bit of a brief chat and, uh, you know, I said, is everything okay with the building? You know, how are you guys going? Have you been busy? You know, how's the downturn affected you? You know, they were in a digital business and it actually hadn't affected them that much. But, you know, he was saying all the right things. They're looking forward to coming back to the office. They were happy with the space. They were happy with the location. You know, all those sorts of things are just great things to know about that. I mean, some of them, are more or less giving you the warm and fuzzies, but yeah, obviously the payment situation is the most important, but getting some feedback directly from the tenant's mouth is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. So what do you do if you find something wrong with the property during the DD period? Yeah, and look, this is often the case, and this building, once again, that we're at the other day, not a very old building, 13 years old, and we had a, a really quite long inspection of the inside of the strata office and then the outside. But we did notice that parts of the outside 
really needed it was minor stuff it really needed you know a good pressure this is just our own visual inspection we're walking around and we thought look this needs a pressure wash there was a bit of stuff lying around some of the um, common area lighting was a little bit rusted things like that so we just made a note of all that but in that we knew that in this particular property there's about seventy thousand dollars in the sinking fund and it just really needs someone to say hey look can we get this stuff done now if for example, then the building inspector goes to the property and finds that there's something wrong with the roof. That's a strata property. So once again, then you would want to make sure in that instance that there's enough money in the sinking fund to fix whatever he's suggesting needs to be fixed. But if it's a standalone property, you could potentially go back to the owner and say, look, there is at least $60,000 worth of work on this $500,000 property. It's going to kill the sale. So you either fix the roof or take $60,000 off the price and I'll proceed. And that can happen more often than you would think. So the other thing that can happen that you may find wrong with the property may not be with the physical property, but it may be that uh, in one deal that I helped with was a $3 million property and the people were buying that property based on a 7.5% net return. And halfway through the due diligence period, the owner piped up. Uh, he was very honest and said, look, I'm sorry, but I've left out some outgoings that have been taken off the spreadsheets for some reason. So there's more outgoings to come off the net rent. So it's not going to be showing you 7.5% net. But he said, OK, but we'll deduct $20,000 off the price. And my people that I was helping buy that property sort of said, well, that's great. And I said, actually, it's not, because if you deduct that, those numbers off the uh, net rent, the difference is actually $100,000 in value, you know, based on the net return of redoing the numbers on 7.5%. I hope that's not confusing too much. But anyway, they ended up taking $100,000 off the price. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So have you ever walked away from a deal after you spent a lot of money during the due diligence period? Yes, I have. And I've known several people that have, you know, spent, say, $8,000, something like that on due diligence, getting perhaps quite a way into due diligence and extending the term. One I was involved with, it was a property that was potentially very good, but it just, as time went on, there was just stuff that was not being provided document-wise. And then there was a number of building and sort of slight uh, certification issues, which are sort of common thing that just didn't seem to be coming together. And the person I was helping was happy to walk away from that deal and just move on and buy something else. And and I've walked away spending three or four thousand dollars on legal fees, getting things together. And then there's something that you just can't get past. There's some issue with the property. And also, sometimes it's just that you have a change of heart that you think. Mm, this is not the right property for me or you know you're halfway through due diligence and another better property in the same area and same price range comes up and you think well I'm just better to jump into this other property that's the beauty of having the due diligence period you mentioned something there just there before James the certification for the tenancy approval is that something that you would definitely nail down now during the due diligence period yeah absolutely look I have seen deals where one deal that was in, I think it was in Bathurst actually, where the people were off operating, the tenant was operating a very successful cafe in a building. And when the buyers were through going through the due diligence, a food operation was actually not allowable in that zoning. Um, so, so, you know, they could have been potentially, and the problem is, of course, you've been to council, someone's been to council to ask about it and then alerted council. So it's a bit of a tricky situation and they weren't going to get approval for a cafe. And these people, the cafe had been there for a number of years. So they decided to walk away from that. But there's, you know, there's, there's things like fire certification as well. It's very, very important. You would definitely want to know about that, that if a building wasn't up to scratch with fire certification, that can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to bring that up to scratch. That's more something that your lawyer would do, but sometimes building inspectors, um, you know, may pick something up, although, you know, building inspection reports, if anyone's ever got one, you'll see they've got all sorts of disclaimers on there saying they look at everything, but don't, you know, don't really look at everything, you know, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, 
But, you know, so this is where it's, you know, it's up to your lawyer to say, okay, where's the current, you know, fire certificate and when was the last inspection made, that sort of thing there. You can ask questions yourself uh, of, you know, via the agent of all these things, particularly if you go to a property and, and you see something yourself. Now, that's why I always recommend actually taking a video of properties, particularly if it's a standalone property rather than a strata property, but you might just be moving that video camera around you come back to your desk and you look at that and you think what's that old fire alarm doing on the wall or you know what's what's that thing that's hanging off the wall with the wires hanging out of it those little things that you just sort of pick up after you've looked at a lot of deals you know and you think hmm that doesn't look too good or the meter box for example often that's another inspection that a building inspector may pick up but he won't give you too much information or he might just say look the wiring looks old and the and the meter box looks very old and, you know, that could cost you $25,000, $35,000 or something like that to upgrade. Now, it's okay if you know about it and you're prepared for it, but it may cause you to have the price of the property reduced. And it may be something that the vendor's not even aware of. Yeah, it's very hard to take in every single aspect, like nook and cranny of the property when you're kind of there, like, you know, you're excited, you're looking at it, you're thinking of upsides, and it's, it's very hard to take in, you know, crack here, crack there. So that's a good tip. And with the certification for the approval of that tenant, do you just go straight to council to check that? Well, it would be generally something driven by your lawyer that, first of all, kind of check the zoning. Now, sometimes you find these funny, uh, well, you know, not funny, but slightly unusual properties that might be, you know, like a doctor's surgery or a dental surgery that's, say, in a residential zone. And, you know, they have a specific approval, like a sort of island approval, which can be actually absolutely fine for that property to operate. So your lawyer will apply for the the zoning and planning certificates from the council. And if an agent's worth his salt and wants to sell that property at the right pricing and a nice clean deal, agents should have a lot of this stuff together. I mean, the old saying used to be well listed as half sold, meaning that if you're selling a property and you provide absolutely everything that you've got, you know, all the fire certificates, maintenance contracts, all the stuff that you would ever have for that property, and you provide that all in a nice file to the buyer, it's going to make the buyer a lot happier to make a decision. But, you know, a lot of properties aren't like that, particularly auction properties. So it's very, very important. And it just gives you the advantage of being able to go back, just moving back to, say, that power box issue. You know, if the vendor doesn't know about it, and then he suddenly realises that he's got to spend 35 If you don't go ahead with the sale, I guess I'm saying, he suddenly realises that he's going to have to spend 35 grand on the power box. Isn't he better to do a deal with you, you know? Yeah, and yeah that's, that's right. So it's putting you in a position of power just simply because you've done your homework. I mean, you're not trying to screw anyone. You're just trying to get a fair deal. So, so yeah, it is driven by your lawyer, but, you know, you definitely want to be uh, particularly if it's a whole building, there is a, a vast difference between buying strata and a whole building, of course, because when you're buying strata, I mean, you're effectively buying the sort of inside walls and volumetric space of that building, and the rest of the building should be looked after by the body corporate. But when you buy a whole building, I mean, of course, you've got everything, you know, roof to, to grounds to the whole bit that you have to pay for. So you really want to make sure that it's all good. Can you ever spend too much during your due diligence period? And is there a rule of thumb? Uh, look, I, I would think probably getting back to that, say, 500K strata title property that that whole legal due diligence side of things might cost, you know, and including valuation, say, seven grand, probably max, you know, max $8,000. But on a $3 million property that, that's got multi-tenants, it may be something that you would at least think, you're going to spend fifteen to twenty thousand dollars on that property, but I think obviously on a small property, if you're starting to have to get major, say, physical investigations done, way more than a building inspection, and and let's say this happens, you get a building inspector that goes through a, a freestanding building that you're looking at buying, and I've had this, and he says, look, there's multiple cracks in this building. That's all I'm going to say. Now you need to get an engineer, right? Then you ring up an engineer and the engineer says, look, it's going to cost $5,000 to get that report. You might really rethink that deal. <laughs> you know? yeah. 
you, you may be able to get the engineer to have a walk through with you and say, look, can you just come and tell me what you think without a written report? That's probably going to be rare because everyone has to cover themselves these days. But I think, you know, it's one of those things you have to be a little bit careful with. I once looked at a building, for example, that had sunk and it needed to be propped up and underpinned. And I had an engineer just walk through with me and he said, oh, look, this is probably going to cost you the best part of $100,000 to repair and if you want me to write up a report that's probably going to cost you know three and a half thousand dollars do you want to do it well i didn't feel comfortable because i was pretty sure that the owner was not going to reduce the price by 100k and i didn't want to do the work so i didn't want to have the drama of doing the work so i walked away from that deal but it's one of those things each deal is different okay so what happens if you find something wrong after your due diligence period i mean that's like it'd be terrible wouldn't it but you've done all your dd you've got all your searches done you're happy with everything and then you've gone unconditional and then something else pops up what do you do well you can always try to renegotiate some people look i would say most people are reasonable if it was something that was pretty major or catastrophic that particularly actually if it's been deliberately hidden, I think that's probably a big thing. You'd have to get legal advice on that. I would say, generally speaking, after the DD period ends, you're stuck with it. You've had your chance to have a look at it, and I think that's the way you've got to operate. You know, you've got this fixed period to have a look at the property, both physically and sort of document and tenant-wise. And if you find something after that period and you're rolling up to settlement, there's probably not a hell of a lot you can do. You could try. But I would say 90% chance there's nothing you can do. Yeah, fair enough. Do you think there's anything else we've missed, James? Have we covered it all? Uh, look, I think there's common things that come up with due diligence. And I think actually uh, something that does get glossed over a little bit because people are sort of focused on the building side of things, like the lawyers saying, OK, we need to get that document, this document and this inspection. But really honing down, if you haven't already, on the actual rental amounts and the outgoings is a very big thing because quite often just rolling back to when you make your offer if you arrive at a price and it's going to show you seven and a half percent return like in that example i mentioned before you could say to the agent i'm buying this property based on this price based on the seven and a half percent net return and then sort of gives you a bit of a an in to if there is something incorrect in the outgoings, for example, you can go back and say, hey, look, I, I told you I wanted to buy it 7.5%. Now I've found that the outgoings have been misrepresented. Only during the due diligence period you'd be able to do this. So I would like a price adjustment now because the property has been represented to me and it's not the way it is. Yeah, great advice there. And if you'd like to learn more about how to use commercial property to reach financial freedom, James has a free webinar that you can directly access via the Commercial Property Show affiliate link, which is www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com.au forward slash CPS. And where else can they contact you, James? On jamesdawsonproperty.com.au. That's the best website, but directly through your link for the webinar is fantastic. Fantastic. James Dawson has been my guest today. Thanks, James. Thanks, Andrew. Chat soon. Thank you so much for being here and sharing this double-digit milestone episode with me. I want to thank my guests, Mish Daniel and James Dawson. Shout out to Kevin McLeod for the music. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, be obsessed or be average. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Developer Life production.